Hi, everybody. My name is Greg Hancock, and along with my categorically amazing friend, Patrick Curran, we make up Quantitude. We're a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In today's episode, we talk about the challenges of having ordered categorical data, as well as the seemingly magical limited information and full information analytical options to deal with such data. Along the way, we also mention sky cranes, the Mars Climate Orbiter, Metric versus Imperial Units, Lockheed Martin, Left Hands and Right Hands, the A380, 6-inch extension cords, Home Depot, Billion Dollar Shooting Stars, Being Unidextrous, Playing the Recorder, Starwipe, Jello Molds, Throbbing and Pulsating Distributions, Fast Pass Walk of Shame, Monarch Notes, Manamana, and 1.7. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Have you seen the videos from the most recent Mars Explorer? Oh, spectacular. I wish I had named one of my children Sky Crane. <laughs> I mean, how freaking cool is that to have a Sky Crane? <laughs> it's not too late. You mean to have more children or to rename my existing ones? Oh, God, no. You should not reproduce further. But maybe... <laughs> I don't have the energy. Uh -huh. Man, I was running through a park and there was a dad playing with a two-year-old. And my only thought was I couldn't do that again if I wanted to. I just mm -hmm. want to sit down and pull an afghan around my shoulders and... Crochet toilet paper cozies. <laughs> but what a trip. Yet again, though, it absolutely entrenches how I feel like my contributions to science are just simply nothing. So I designed the sky crane. What do you do? <laughs> well, I had a linear effective age, and then I entered the squared version of age, <laughs> and I saw if the model fit better. <laughs> Tell me more about your sky crane. If I recall, though, not not all efforts at Mars things worked. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is one of my favorite stories. So what was it? It was late 90s. What mission was it? Do you remember? It was for a climate orbiter or something like that. Exactly. We have ignition and we have liftoff of NASA's Mars Climate Orbiter as we continue to explore the mysteries of the red planet. So it was the Mars Orbiter, it was late 90s, and JPL designed part of it. And then Lockheed Martin did the math on the trajectory. Yeah. And they sent it, what, 250 million miles, I think it is, to <laughs> Mars. And picture that, 250 million miles. Think about the math, yeah. right? Because this is slingshot. They loop it out of the Earth's atmosphere, and it's slung by gravity. It's brilliant. 250 million miles. It enters the Mars orbit, is 10 kilometers above the ground, and burns up and just disappears. <laughs> And they did a post-mortem on it, and they found out that one group was using imperial measures and one group was using metric, and they didn't communicate with one another. Oops. And all I could picture is if there's some life on Mars and some creature is outside his hole sitting in a folding chair smoking a cigarette. Calling the kids out to see it, right? Yeah, bringing, Hillsat, Nathan, come, come. <laughs> and that's interpreted as there's a $1 billion shooting star. A stranger from the outside. <laughs> But what it is, is it makes me think about these wonderful, does the left hand know what the right mm. hand is doing? <clears throat> yeah. So to be fair to the JPL and Lockheed Martin people, I cut them a little bit of slack, even, <laughs> even though it's like this billion dollar effort and they send things across the heavens <laughs> and it chokes because of a conversion problem. One of the stories that I heard as a kid very, very early on was I had made some mistake that I thought was absolutely horrific as a kid, pretty young too, elementary school. And my dad told me about the first thing he was tasked with. My dad worked at Boeing. He worked his way up draftsman, engineer, to eventually leading flight deck stuff. But the first task that he was charged with when he was working on the Dash 80 or the KC-135 was he had to lay out all the specs for the panels that they were putting on the side of the plane. 
And so he did that. He sent it off. They brought in $50,000 worth of things, and they go to start mounting them to the side of the plane. And he had mismeasured where the holes needed to be (laughs) pre-drilled to the tune of $50,000. And $50,000 in the mid to late 1950s was a lot of money. (laughs) And so... (laughs) So he he went into his boss's office and was prepared to be fired. And his boss actually cut him some slack and said, don't worry, this won't be nearly as bad as a Mars mission. Uh, (laughs) That's going to come in 40 years. 40 years from now. But yeah, so I'm a bit tolerant of human error. To show that it's not just at Boeing, you know, I have this weirdo interest in planes and I get these trade magazines on aviation and the A380, so Airbus, Mm -hmm. is the European competitor to Boeing. And one of the big things with Airbus is they distribute their design and manufacturing across multiple EU member countries so that everybody has a little bit that they do. But it also imposes these huge complexities where they literally will assemble like a fuselage and they will Mm -hmm. put it on a massive truck and they'll drive it hundreds of kilometers where then they can bolt on the wings in another country. Well, when they were building the A380, so that's the super jumbo double decker. Mm -hmm. It's an absolute trip. But in the early 2000s, they Mm -hmm. were building the prototype of the A380 and they assembled part of the structure in Hamburg and they put it on this giant truck and then they took it to Toulouse in France and they spent weeks threading several hundred kilometers of electronic wiring throughout the fuselage from the back and the flight surfaces up to the cockpit. It took weeks and weeks and weeks, and when they went to put the cables together in the connection, it was six inches too short. (laughs) (laughs) They had just mismeasured in laying out the cables, and because of requirements in the manufacturer, they couldn't just build a (laughs) six-inch extension cord. Couldn't go to Home Depot and grab some stuff. (laughs) Let's do this. That's the power of the Home Depot. And they had to strip it, the entire plane, and rewired it. Wow. Maybe the theme here is the left hand doesn't always know what the right hand is doing. And sometimes you can reconcile that. And sometimes it's just a beautiful $1 billion shooting star. (laughs) Yeah, it kind of describes the position that we are in a lot, I'm afraid. Do, Do we want to be the left hand or the right hand? I'll be the right hand because I might as well not even have a left hand. I am so <laughs> unidextrous, uniambidextrous. I don't know what the word is. My left <laughs> hand is useless. Like I can't even pick up a cup of coffee with my left hand. So I dibs right hand. Okay. Let's let statisticians, quantitative methodologists be the right hand. And we as quantitative methodologists find ourselves working with people in substantive areas all the time. And one of the things that frustrates me enormously, oh, it's one of my giantest pet peeves, is that they come to us after they have done all of the data gathering and they try to ask us to clean up stuff on the back end. And we look at what they've got and we go, well, why did you do this? I don't don't know. I don't know. I really am sometimes bitter about that right-handed role that we play when the left hand never asked us initially what they ought to do to plan. But M plus will fix it. (laughs) Patrick, M plus is a parser and an optimizer. (laughs) Attaboy. I'm trainable. So for today, in that left hand, right hand, we want to talk a little bit about ordinal response scales, discrete response scales, binary, trichotomous, Likert, 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 Likert. Stop it, stop it, stop it. (laughs) Five kittens died just then. Wow. We can take a trip back through time. Why do we still use four-level ordinal items when a lot of that came from paper and pencil days? Mm -hmm. As an undergrad RA, one of the things I did was write down by hand the response numbers from items that had four-level ordinal where they would circle one and three and two and four. And I would literally write down one, three, two, four, and then Mm -hmm. someone else would hand enter that into the computer we worked by tallow candle at the rough hewn <laughs> table with the vellum 
But I think a lot of it is kind of a big bang echo where even though we're on Qualtrics, even though we're electronic based, even though we're pushing things by smartphone, mm-hmm. somehow we still have these three or four or five level ordinal response scales that we don't think about when it gets to Toulouse. <laughs> Are those two cables going to plug into one another or not? Yeah, exactly right. The folks down there in the design department who send out these surveys, they don't talk to us about this. If they had, if they had talked to us about their instruments, about their plans for analysis and so forth, we could have at least advised them. And you know what? Sometimes we would advise them to gather those ordinal types of data, those binary types of outcomes, because sometimes it totally makes sense, right? Exactly. And what we need to do is we need to measure things as they exist in the wild. With my clinical background, I love binary data. I really Mm -hmm. do. When you're thinking about things like symptomatology. So if you're interviewing a mom and having her report on a child, in the last seven days, have you seen evidence of the following behaviors? Yes, no, yes, no, Mm -hmm. yes, yes, no. I love binary responses. Now, the problem, there are two things that we're going to get poked in the eye. Mm -hmm. One is there is no psychometric response scale that has less numerical information than a binary because it's a light switch. Either it's on or it's off. So that's part of the problem. But the other part is what about our linear continuous models that we know and love? Mm -hmm. When you start moving to these discrete response scales, how are we going to fit models and evaluate hypotheses in a way that's consistent with the distributions of the data, and how much of those can we make a six-inch extension cord to gap it, and how much do we need to strip out the wires and rewire the plane? When I was in seventh grade, we had a student teacher for music who was there to get certified to teach. Did you play the recorder in junior high or middle school? Oh, there's federal legislation in this country that everyone has to play the recorder. (laughs) It's it's mandatory. Yes, I did. Yeah, right. I don't know if our international friends out there have the same laws governing their curriculum. But this student teacher said we all had to write a song using only two notes on the recorder which, how could we make the recorder even less enjoyable? He went around and he would have each person play their little two-note song. And I got up and played my song, which was really just a, a brilliant exploration of, of meter and all, you know. And at the end of my song, he looked at me and he goes, really, that's the best you could do? <laughs> okay, but... Possibly the greatest rock song ever written opens with a two-note sequence. Can you tell me what it is? Uh, I'm going to go with YYZ by Rush. Face it, you just blew it as a kid. You had an opportunity to write YYZ. On recorder, because it's that much better. But I liked what you said about our job sometimes is we either have to strip the whole fuselage of the kilometers and kilometers of wire, or we have to try and solve the problem by coming up with that six inch. It's interesting that you used kilometers and inches in the same story. It's appropriate. So you would have been qualified to work on that Mars project. See, I could have done real science. So the people in the design department or whatever who are doing the study and they have gone out and gathered the data and then they come running to us and they go, okay, okay, so wait, what do we, what do, we do now? And we are faced with these data that are possibly binary, possibly ordinal, and we have this immediate choice point of do we just beat this thing to death with linear hammers? Do we just ignore the ordinality? Do we say, eh, it's close enough for Lockheed Martin? <laughs> Or do we have to try something fancier? And I think we need to explore these options here. So let's pan back a little bit. We'll do a Vaseline lens kind of star wipe. That's another of my favorite Homer Simpsons is he's making a home movie and everything is star wipe, star wipe. Star wipe, star wipe, star wipe. There are other wipes besides star wipes. Why eat hamburger when you can have steak? (laughs) We have two things that we have to pay attention to. 
Continuity. Mm -hmm. So when you think about a one unit change in X is associated with a gamma unit change in Y, are we moving on a continuous number line? And then conditional normality. So are the residuals normally distributed? As we talked about in this prior episode, if we can retain continuity but have non-normality, we actually have some really nice ways of dealing with that. Mm -hmm. It works super well as long as we can retain continuity. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of where we left the episode off, which is if you check continuity at the door, you have to move to a whole new partner to dance with. There have been decades of work of, well, what's continuous enough? What about three levels? What about four? What about five? What about six? What about seven? Mm -hmm. Word on the street right now is six, seven, eight or more, you're fine. As long as people respond to them. Because if 80% say zero, then it's not operating as a six level ordinal. So six, seven, eight, you're probably fine with maximum likelihood using robust. Micah Rumtula, Vika Savile, they've done together and separately some really nice work that if you have five levels, that you have a reasonable distribution across your response options. You can use linear maximum likelihood with robust standard errors and test statistics you're good. Less than five, you can't use our usual normal theory maximum likelihood, even if you do robust, and you got to change horses. All right. So I have a lot of reactions to the things that you have said so far. The first thing is that none of the situations you have described to me really is normal. Technically speaking, right? Normal is continuous by definition. I know that some people will use the term normal to describe these very pretty, even if discrete kinds of distributions where it sort of looks like you took a normal curve and then just put in some tent poles. And it usually just means that you have a sort of decaying symmetry on either side. The other thing is I don't think any of the variables that we deal with ever are going to be continuous because there's limits of our measurement. I don't measure your height. How tall are you? Like 5'11", 6 feet? 6 feet even. But you're not exactly 6 feet tall, right? You're 6 foot something or I'm sorry to let you know you might be 5 foot 11.8397. But at some point we discretize things and we don't care. Right, We say that's good enough, and we use methods that invoke normal theory in the residuals, and good enough. When we start working our way down, we start to get into this five-category zone, and we're on the edge of something right there. And certainly, it gets harder and harder for us to look ourselves in the mirror and say, these data are normal, these data are normal, these data are normal, right? We could maybe do it with six categories, seven categories, because we feel this symmetry that's tapering off out near the edges. As you start getting closer to five, though, two things are happening. You can't even lie to yourself that you have something that is close enough to continuity. And a normal theory correction might help you to some extent to deal with the non-normality. The thing that we're not covered on, though, and I think this is really the problem is that we lose information as we go from seven categories down to six, down to five, down to four, down to three, down to two. The ability of our variables to relate to each other simply changes. We don't have as much opportunity for variability along a continuum when you break that continuum up into smaller and smaller pieces. And so for analytical systems that are entirely based on the relations among variables, it gets compromised. Right, And you can watch your correlations. You can watch your covariances get attenuated, attenuated, attenuated as you remove that information. So when we talk about a lot of the corrections that I love, I think you called them freaking magic. Those are great when you can sort of convince yourself that your data are continuous enough for Lockheed Martin. But they can't deal with the relationship issue. They can't deal with the loss of information. I think that's where we start to have to come up with those six-inch cables or (laughs) (laughs) 15-centimeter (laughs) cables. It's close enough. Ah, hell. Kilometers, miles. Doesn't matter. Yeah, exactly. And one thing that we sometimes forget is, yes, it's easier. So I'll talk to a colleague and they'll say, well, people can't process more than four options. I very much disagree. I disagree. I agree. Or I very much agree. Mm-hmm. The price you pay for that, as you're just saying, is that attenuation in correlations. So it's not just, uh, oh, the stat wonks are going to ding me in a review if I don't address the ordinality and I got to check this box just so I can get the paper in. No, Mm -hmm. 
We've known back to Fisher and Pearson and even before then, the term I like sometimes is coarse categorization. Mm-hmm. Moutaine and Kaplan back in the 80s have a couple of really nice papers on the deleterious effects of coarse categorization. If you have some correlation with a continuous variable and you bin it up in 10 or 6 or 4 categories, each time you make it coarser, that correlation between the variables goes down. That correlation is your unit of analysis for your models, and you're walking out on the field with one arm tied behind your back because your correlations are smaller than they should be solely because of the scale of measurement you use to assess the item. And if that's your right arm tied behind your back, you are useless. Oh, I'm screwed. I couldn't even drink coffee. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes that really is appropriate, right? You might be dealing with really young kids, and the best you're going to get out of them is touch the smiley face or touch the frowny face. Mm -hmm. That's what you got. It's entirely developmentally appropriate. With other populations, there are options for getting much more fine-grained information. Actually, what I think is it varies on what someone is rating. If you have sufficiently sophisticated raters who are in touch with whatever it is that's being rated, sometimes more scale points are necessary to capture the subtleties that they perceive. They're just noticeable differences. And for other things, people's ability to understand their own attitudes or opinions or behaviors is just coarser, and that's the way it is. I really want to double down both now and later in that notion of it depends. Mm -hmm. I really like your perspective that... We might give an iPad to a five-year-old and give a, you know, a sad face, a middle face, and a smiley Mm -hmm. face, and that's appropriate for that particular setting. We might have counts, right? A lot Mm -hmm. of in my world with substance use is that's a different kind of discrete variable. Mm -hmm. So in the last seven days, how many times have you had five or more drinks in one setting? Zero or one or two or three or four. It's a natural count variable. So there are a lot of different kinds of things in play here. I think maybe what we could narrow our conversation down to is this notion of either a a binary, because I would like to talk about those, but also just good old school ordinal. I like your term symmetric decay. Mm -hmm. That's another band I would go see at the Cat's Cradle. (laughs) They're opening for numerical isomorphism. (laughs) Let's check five ordinal at the door. So mm-hmm. Remtula and Savile have given some pretty convincing findings that if you have symmetric decay, that maximum likelihood with robust estimation is probably okay. You have four level ordinal and you can't look yourself in the mirror in the morning and say it's continuous. What are the downsides of ignoring it and how can we address that in practice? The consequence of moving forward with something that is a linear procedure, which is what we historically have done, is manyfold. One is you may get an inaccurate picture of the overall fit associated with a model. Another is that you may get an inaccurate estimate of standard errors for the parameters within your model. Yet another is that the parameters themselves can be biased. And remember, a lot of the parameters that we estimate are based on the relations that we observe in the data. And if the relations that we observe in the data are attenuated because of the coarseness that we have in those data, then our parameter estimates have no choice but to be attenuated as a result. So we can get messed up parameter estimates, messed up standard errors, messed up assessments of fit. And if you want to crank the knob up on how messed up things can get, start playing with smaller sample sizes, more complex models. My recollection is that you and Dave Flora, I think, did some stuff in the early 2000s around some of these issues. So although your question was, what do I do? For me, the first thing that I have to do when helping somebody out is helping them to understand the potential scope of the problem. It's funny because you have messed up standard errors and test statistics on parameter estimates that themselves are wrong. Mm -hmm. You can have and very commonly have a model where no aspect of it is correct. Mm -hmm. A lot of what we do are based on the first two moments of a distribution, the means and the variances and the covariances. If you're bringing those to the table and they're biased, everything we do from that point forward is also incorrect. Let's imagine that we had a whole bunch of people conduct the same study 
One person does it with, we'll say, continuous data. Another person does it with seven-category data. Another person does it with five-category data. Another person does it with four-category data, three-category data. If you looked at the results from all of those different studies, they would not necessarily align, even though they're examining the same constructs, they're examining the same phenomena. And so the choices that are made with regard to how we measure things can have a huge impact, as you said, on the inferences that we were to make. What I would love to do, if I had a magic wand, I would love to go to each of those studies, the person who has a three-point scale, and I would like to wave my magic wand and somehow decategorize that information, and then go to the four-category study, and the five-category study, and the seven-category study, and say, you are all equal, right? I would sort of like to absolve them all of their categorical sins, so I could get them all back up to that continuous level. Because fundamentally, they are operating on the same variables. It's just the measurement choices that were made that flushed out some of that information. So I want that magic wand that disattenuates the relations that I have of the categorical choices so I can get everybody back up to that continuous playing field. Ah, but you have that magic wand. What? (laughs) (laughs) What about polychoric correlations? Tell me about those, Greg. Imagine for simplicity that you just have a whole bunch of binary variables. We can make them of any number of categories. And you wanted to know the relations among your binary variables. One option is to compute a, well, historically a phi coefficient, which is really just a Pearson correlation between the zeros and ones that you have on these variables. And what we know is that the relations among these zeros and ones are going to be far less than they would have been if those zeros and ones had never been zeroed and one right? If they had just been their original (laughs) continuous variables. Did you just make a number into a verb? I did. I verbed it. Uh, (laughs) Oh man, a meta verb. Boom. (laughs) Damn. I'm here all week. Thanks everybody. (laughs) So what it would be nice to do is to be able to take that phi coefficient and get rid of the effects of the categorization. There is such a correlation and it's called a tetrachoric. And Historically, the tetrachoric was computed by mathematical chicanery and approximation and all of that. Now, these things called tetrachorics are computed through fancier mathematical chicanery. But, oh, it's just so beautiful. It is the goal to have the relation between the two underlying variables that is not attenuated by the categorization. So wouldn't that be the magic wand that we would want? In, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like in 1979 or so, was it Ulf Olson? Olson and Psychometrica. It is one of the most underrated papers, I think, in general, but also in this lineage of work. Is It is a work of beauty. I totally agree. Olson laid out the way that we can estimate what the underlying degree of correlation is at the continuous level for which our binary data, our categorical data, have the maximum likelihood of occurring. I don't mean to make this more technical than it needs to be, but the term that I think best categorizes it is it is f***ing magic. (laughs) So tell us how the magic works. Let me try to give a brief description of the magic. There are weeds involved, but it's just so ridiculously clever. Let's imagine that we have these two variables and we have the binary versions of them, but there are continua that underlie each of them. And honestly, there could be real continua that underlie them. And what I mean by that is if you were forced to choose agree or disagree, but in fact, we can have different levels of agreement ranging from extremely strong agreement to extremely strong disagreement. That's my 11 point scale. Or we could imagine something that's actually truly binary, but the continuum that underlies it is more about propensity to choose a one. Either way, we can imagine that a binary variable or more generally an ordinal variable has some continuum underlying it. I'll stick with binary for now. I go to my data and I see that 60% have chosen a 1 and 40% have chosen a 0. If I'm willing to assume that that underlying distribution is normal, well, I know something about where in a normal curve I can draw a line to cut the top 60% who endorsed a 1 from the bottom 40% who endorsed a 0. That's just Z-score stuff. I know how Z-scores work. I can just look that up. 
So what I'm trying to do is build a link between the categorical information that we have and potentially the continuous information that we wish we had instead. Now let's think instead of univariately, let's think bivariately. Now when I take two such variables, each of which is binary, and I put them together into a little two-by-two two contingency table, I know how many people are one ones, I know how many people are zero zeros, and one zeros and zero ones. There are proportions that fall in those different categories. Now let's imagine that I have a bivariate normal distribution. That might be a pretty big assumption, but let's imagine that these two variables in their underlying continua come together to form this beautiful mountain and the mountain might indicate no degree of correlation, it might indicate a high degree of correlation. I'm not exactly sure, but what I do know is that there are certain proportions of people who fall in each of the four cells. The question is, and this is really where the beauty of it comes, is for each of these binary variables, I have a guess about where that threshold falls, that z-score that divides the ones from the zeros. If I treat that as a knife and I slice through that bivariate distribution from the x1 axis at the threshold, and I slice through that bivariate distribution from the x2 axis at the threshold, it is going to carve that mountain. It is going to carve that bivariate distribution up into four chunks. So here's the question. What shape would that bivariate distribution have to have to come as close as possible to yielding the proportion of one ones, the proportion of zero zeros, the proportion of one zeros, the proportion of zero ones that we observe? And so we can imagine an iterative process that tries all these different shapes of bivariate distributions. I always think of them as jello molds. <laughs> I don't know if you were forced to eat jello as a child at your. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> My brother and I would have contests of how far you could let it slide down your throat before you actually had to swallow. <laughs> I almost choked to death about half a dozen times. <laughs> but I won, by God. That's what's important here. <laughs> So we have these different shapes of jello molds, and we cut them up. And if you had this perfectly round jello mold with no correlation between the underlying X1 and X2, then if we had had 50% of the people on X1 have ones and 50% have zeros, and the same on X2, and we sliced through that jello mold, we would get equal numbers of people in each of those four quadrants. But what if we don't have equal numbers in each of those four quadrants? Well, so then the question is, what shape, what jello mold would we have to be slicing through from the X1 direction at our threshold and from the X2 direction at our threshold to be consistent with the data that we have? And what Olson laid out is a way to estimate what the shape of that jello mold, that bivariate distribution would have to be as an estimate of in this case, what would be a tetrachoric correlation, but in the case where you have more categories, what would be a more general polychoric correlation? An estimate of the underlying relation between two ordinal variables that is now at the original continuum level. There's a great paper in Psych Methods 2007 by R.J. Wirth, W-I-R-T-H, and Mike Edwards, Wirth and Edwards. And they have one of my favorite figures in there that demonstrates what you just described. Mm -hmm. I forget if they had a binary. They might have had a trichotomous. I think it was a three-level response, which means they're two threshold. But what I like about that, and this is how I try to visualize it myself, they have a super nice square, mm -hmm. and it is divided into nine subsquares because there are two cuts one way, two cuts the other way. And so it's a three-by-three. They have a marginal normal distribution for one item and the other item that shows those cuts on the propensity distribution. And then there's a bivariate contour plot that is in the body of the figure. Mm -hmm. My dad was a hobby photographer, and some of my most pleasant memories were being in the dark room with him as a kid. Mm -hmm. And he would do these contact sheets where he would make, you know, multiple images. And he would show the through the negative onto the contact sheet, and he would move the photographic paper around until it matched what he wanted on the contact contact sheet and then he would expose it. I feel like you have this three by three grid 
where you have the bivariate contour plot mm -hmm. and you're moving it around until the areas of the bivariate contour most closely match the proportion that are in each of those nine squares. And when you get that, then you have the bivariate ellipse that best represents the three by three contingency table. Mm -hmm. And then you take the major axis of that ellipse and that's the polychoric correlation or covariance, depending upon how you scale it. It is freaking magic. You are able to get the correlation between the two continuous propensities only using the discretized ordinal measures that you have available to you. And it works under assumptions. Everything is under assumptions, but it works really well. So imagine that you had a whole bunch of these variables in your model. One way to think about this, not the only way, not the most comprehensive way, but think about just going through and doing this two variables at a time, figuring out what this polychoric relation will be between each pair of variables that you have. And then, of course, we can also introduce having some variables that are continuous enough and talk about the relations between variables that are ordinal with variables that are continuous and get what are called polyserial relations as well. After these kinds of adjustments are made, and they can be made individually, they can be made collectively, there are a variety of ways of thinking about this. But the gist of this is we're trying to take our data and remove the effects of the categorization that has been done so that all of the relations we have, whether we think about them as correlations or covariances, all of them are estimates of the relations that exist among the variables at a continuous level. And that then is the level at which we wish to try to do our modeling. For as complicated as a lot of what we do can get, these things are undergrad problem set kind of things. This is literally saying compute the cut point on the Z that defines the lower 28% then the next 40%, and then the complement is whatever is left over. But we have to assume that univariate normality and bivariate normality. And the reason is, is, well, we can't compute the area under a curve if we don't know what the shape of the curve is. Mm -hmm. And so we're just going to say, well, okay, I got to pick one. I'm going to do normal. Dave Flora, who was a student of mine, he did a wonderful dissertation, and it was in Psych Methods. He published it. It's Flora and Curran. I don't remember the year. 2004. 2004. Mm -hmm. I should know that better than you do, but okay. First, Dave is a brilliant writer, and it's crystal clear working through these things. But his entire dissertation was saying, well, what if it's not normal? Mm -hmm. And he yoinked them to the left, and he yoinked them <laughs> to the right. And it turns out that these methods are highly robust to violations of the underlying normality. So a lot of people will say, oh, well, that's unrealistic. Like Dave really yoinked these. Mm -hmm. And when you then fit models that correspond to that, there's very little negative impact of that. So this is a mathematical convenience so that we can calculate these thresholds and then get that major axis of the ellipse. So that's number one. Mm -hmm. Second, one thing I'll hear people say is, well, adolescent substance use isn't normally distributed, and so my non-normal distribution reflects what it should be. Mm -hmm. But one thing is, is we have to move conceptually when we move to this underlying distribution, that it's not the distribution of the outcome itself. It's, as you alluded to, the propensity, right? So even if adolescent drug use is highly non-normal, mm -hmm. we can make a reasonable statement that the propensity to use alcohol varies in some continuous and normal way across adolescence. And so there are some people that are light years away from using drugs, but there are some people that are a little closer and a little closer and a little closer and a little closer. And at some point you flip from not using to using, and that's your threshold. So now let's pivot and say we have this amazing architecture for taking two at a time where we have these binary or ordinal, whatever they might be, and we get this magical correlation matrix. And again, we can scale that as covariances if we want to. Great, we're done. Take it to the SEM, <laughs> fit it. Why can't we do that, Dr. Hancock? One of the challenges with these polychoric correlation matrices or covariance matrices is that they don't quite 
throb and pulsate according to the multivariate distributions, Wishart kinds of distributions that we assume operate. Was that Pearson's, the throb and pulsate, or was that Fisher? I forget which one derived those analytically. Actually, Galton was the one who talked about throbbing and pulsating, and he made Pearson do the math. Okay, so good. I just wanted to get historical. So the throb and pulsate was ultimately Galton. That's right. Okay, good. So from sample to sample, the multivariate distribution kind of does a heartbeat thing, goes, and it adopts these different shapes. But the problem with the polychoric correlation or covariance matrix is that it doesn't really vary the way that we assume. So we can't treat this matrix as standard input for this type of analysis. What that means is that we need to switch over to some version of a weighted least squares estimation procedure to try to correct for what we would expect to be the sampling behavior of this type of matrix. And there are a lot of different options in this world, right? There are. And we have determined that one of our heroes is Michael Brown. Mm -hmm. And you can trace back to his work in 82 and 84, where he laid out the foundations for continuous variables. But that stuff generalizes directly to these kinds of things. So you can do asymptotic distribution free, weighted least squares, diagonally weighted least squares, mean invariance adjusted weighted least squares. There's textbooks that could be written about this. Mm -hmm. You know how I think about it, Greg, is it's going to shock you that I think about this in a more colloquial way. (laughs) You can't bring a polycourt covariance matrix in and treat it as if you had observed these directly Mm -hmm. on the continuous counterparts because it ain't fair. Mm -hmm. You didn't observe them directly. And you don't get credit for that covariance matrix as if you did. You got to pay the reaper. Now, the nice thing is, yeah, you got to pay, but it works out really well, right? Is these robust methods work incredibly well. You have a P by P covariance matrix that's based on these trichotomous measures, and you get a polycourt covariance matrix and bring it in and use some kind of robust weighted least squares. That is damn near as good as if you observe those continua directly in estimating your model to the data that you have at hand. I think it's absolutely remarkable. And the fact that it works so well is problematic from a behavior reinforcement standpoint because the people who gathered the data in the first place who should have talked to you, now their behavior is rewarded and they're just going to keep on doing it. (laughs) So they're not feeling the pain as much, I'm afraid. This goes back to the Lockheed Martin thing, right? Or maybe more the A380. The Lockheed Martin's a bad one because that was a billion dollar shooting (laughs) star. There's no fixing that. (laughs) Let's go back to the flight deck of the A380. I would have paid a thousand bucks to be in the flight deck when they pulled the two cables together and they said, (laughs) man. How many times have you hung Christmas lights and you have that same thing? It's just now you have a $500 billion aircraft. (laughs) This weightedly squares approach is the six-inch extension cord. Mm -hmm. This is a fix, and it is a fix that's elegant. It is a fix that works extremely well. It is a fix that is verging on magic, but at the end of the day, it's still a fix. We want to fit these linear continuous kinds of models to data that are not linear and continuous, Mm -hmm. and this is how we do a workaround. And that brings us to, it works beautifully, but you still pay the reaper on this. There is a cost at putting that six-inch extension cord to fill the gap, and a few of those are, these are taken bivariately, Mm -hmm. so it's called a limited information approach. Maximum likelihood is called a full information. This is a limited information approach where we are out in the garage bolting these together two at a time. And so we do Y1 and Y2 ignoring everything else. Y1 and Y3 ignoring everything else. All right, so it's a limited information. Second, when we're doing it two at a time, we start getting some pokes in the eye. In my neck of the woods, thank goodness 12-year-olds don't use drugs very commonly, but you start getting zero cells. Well, what do you do then? What if there's missing data? All right, so what I just described as sparseness, well, more and more of our models are longitudinal. And when we have longitudinal, now we start moving into missing data. So there are a lot of limitations. And also a final one is you build these things. And every now and then when you build things bivariately, 
they're not positive definite. You can't invert it. Oof. Yeah. Which is to say that you generate all of these correlations and they couldn't logically coexist. That X1 and X2's correlation could not happen given X2 and X3's correlation, for example. So non-positive definite means that you get all these estimates piecemeal and you put together something that physically couldn't exist in reality. And that's a problem. That's a big problem. So when you start thinking about limited information, you start thinking about the missing data, the sparseness, and simulations show that within reason, this is not a bad thing. If you have a zero, zero cell in your contingency table, so again, imagine just two items, each have three responses, so you have nine possible combinations. If you have a zero cell where one of those nine combinations nobody filled out, which if you're studying certain things or you have a smaller sample size, this is a very common thing that you can encounter. Absolutely. In the letter of the law, you can't calculate a covariance, a polycourt covariance with an empty cell. Software programs will fill in a value so that you can fill that in. Sometimes I'm not going to get into comparing and contrasting. But this goes way back to back in the day with some of these categorical models. You fill in and just say, well, I know nobody did, but I'm going to put one person in just so I can do that. Others will reduce the dimensionality. There are different analytic ways of dealing with that. But as soon as you start saying, well, I know nobody did, but I'm going to put somebody in there where just so I can calculate it, you start squinting your eyes. Mm -hmm. But when you're able to use these methods, and this is where I want to kind of pivot to maybe thinking about what was at the end of Olson's paper that people forget about and is freaking magic too. If you haven't read Olson's paper, go look at it. It's a work of beauty. It really is, is is the 79 Psychometrica. When this works, you can use polychorics and weighted least squares with some robustification, diagonal, mean variance, doesn't matter. Just do something to fix those standard errors. You're back to your usual SEM. You get a chi-square, you get RMSEA, you get fit indices, you get modification indices. You're back in business. You get what we'll comment on in just a moment. You get residual variances for your items. You can correlate residuals. You can do all of these things. But don't forget the Reaper. He's always back in the doorway with his hood over. (laughs) This is fundamentally a limited information approach, which is you're fixing it. But Olson, at the end of his paper, shows this little example with maximum likelihood where you don't have to invoke this whole magic two-by-two jello mold thing, and you can model it directly with maximum likelihood. It's the walk of shame at Disney World where you pay the extra hundred bucks and walk with your head dropped down past the whole line of people waiting. Fast pass. The fast pass walk of shame. So do you think you could give us the Cliff's Notes version? Do we even use Cliff's Notes anymore? Spark Notes? You know, my girls now use Monarch Notes. You and I use Cliff Notes. Notes. Yeah. And I keep telling them they should not tell us at the dinner table that you're taking AP European Lit and have yet to read one of the things they've assigned. (laughs) I admire their honesty, Uh but dude, (laughs) I will try A lot of people do not like the polychoric approach. Mm -hmm. They don't like invoking underlying response distributions. They don't like pretending that we're getting something we didn't. And when I say they, I'm talking about you biostatisticians out there. All right. Biostatisticians. Is anything latent? We're back to, you know, (laughs) if I didn't see it, I don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. All right. Yeah, I'm not painting an entire field with a single brush at all. But you biostatisticians say, dude, you're doing hand puppets and do 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 we can invoke the generalized linear model here. Mm -hmm. Now, for those of you who were taught, the general linear model is the maximally general approach to organize everything. It turns out the general linear model is actually not general. (laughs) The general linear model is a specific instance of the generalized linear model. Is it any wonder people (laughs) hate us? All right, the generalized linear model is beautiful and it's elegant and it is built around these three components that we can have, which is thinking about selecting a response distribution. Mm -hmm. So you don't pretend that it's continuous and normal as you say, well, 
What is the response distribution that corresponds to my outcome? Is it a binomial? Is it a Bernoulli? Is it a Poisson? Is it a negative binomial? I love the zero inflated negative binomial. Mm. Don't pretend it's continuous. Pick the response distribution that corresponds to your outcomes. All right, then you have your linear predictor, and that's our business as usual. Go ahead and build your model. Putting your predictors, your mediation, your CFA, whatever you want. But then you have a sausage maker, and that is the link function. Mm -hmm. And the link function is whatever maps your linear predictor onto your response distribution. And this is beautiful, right? For those of you who do these things, you know the magic of 1 over 1 plus e to the negative eta. That maps your linear predictor back onto your binomial distribution, which is logit. Mm -hmm. What's important is you do the walk of shame fast pass and you bypass all of this underlying propensity, Y star, taus, jello molds and you fit a model directly to your responses all right for you irt people you're going uh-huh <laughs> we've been doing that since 68 welcome to the party <laughs> you can scale these as logits you can scale these as probits if you've done this you know the magic of 1.7 if ever I have something I don't understand, I either multiply by 1.7, divide by 1.7, or square 1.7, and somehow that will reconcile the difference. It would have saved a Mars climate orbiter. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of things. So we just do it directly. It's called full information maximum likelihood. Mm -hmm. The integrals, you can't resolve in closed form. So it's very, very hard to reconcile numerically. But there are wonderful ways we can do this. It's numerical integration, adaptive quadrature, fixed quadrature, all of these things. It is a full information procedure. So under regularity conditions, it's optimally efficient. So we get all of our goodies from maximum likelihood. We don't have this two-step go out in the garage and bolt it together. Mm -hmm. We just model the data natively. It's hard to do, but we can do it. These adaptive quadrature numerical integrations methods work very, very well. Sometimes they're slow. Sometimes they wander off the parameter grid and we have to pull them back. Sometimes they take a couple hours. You know what? Tough crap. Two hours to get these estimates. That's what it takes. Here's the interesting thing. Is nine times out of 10 just making up a number? If you say things confidently, nobody will question it. Nine times out of 10, you're going to tell exactly the same story with weighted least squares as you would with full information maximum likelihood. Mm -hmm. That last one out of 10, well, that's the problem, right? Is we have to figure out in what circumstances might you use one over the other. Why don't we always use FIML? Well, you can't always get models to converge. They're very, very complicated numerically. One is, is I intentionally made kind of a big deal a moment ago, is in the WLS, you get chi-square, RMSEA, modification indices. You don't get any of that in FIML. And the reason is, is there's no saturated model. Remember the walk of shame fast pass? Mm -hmm. You don't have a P by P covariance matrix. You're going straight to the front of the line to work in the likelihood. There is no saturated model. You don't get a chi-square. You don't get fit indices. You don't get modification indices. Do you want weirdo thing of the day? You don't get residual variances. Yeah. <laughs> All right. It's really hard to get your head around, but they're implied by the response distribution. Often what I will do in practice is do both. You can do weighted least squares and get the goodies that come with that and then fit full information maximum likelihood to get point estimates and standard errors. So there are two different ways of doing this that will often get you to the same endpoint, but you need to be aware that there are limited information that's weighted least squares and full information that are maximum likelihood based. There are just a couple of quick things I wanted to say about that. First of all, it is so beautiful when worlds come together. And I've said this before, we spend so much of our education, so much of our statistical lives thinking about all of these different methods as though they don't talk to each other. And oftentimes they were developed in very different traditions and for very different motivations, but they're usually all part of the same system. And where we get this item response theory IRT world 
And this covariant structure modeling world that we talk about coming together to me is just beautiful, elegant, and we can convert back and forth between the two analytical traditions. There are benefits of each and detriments of each, but I love how all of these things sort of come together in the end. And in this case, to be able to deal with categorical variables, it's beautiful. And again, here we are in 2021 talking about this in 1987, Takani and Deleu showed that asymptotically, a two-parameter logistic item response theory is analytically equivalent to a binary confirmatory factor analysis. I think a big part of it is it's only been in the last six or eight or ten years that we've had the software that's been available to make this ready for prime time. Maybe even five years ago, if I got an article to review that had four-level ordinal, I might say you need to comment on this as a potential limitation and use robust. Now I will routinely say if somebody uses a two or three or four level and they don't use one of these methods, I will return it and say this is not the appropriate analytic method for this. These results are not trustworthy, and the models need to be re-estimated using techniques that are readily available to researchers. Mm -hmm. So we're getting long in the tooth here with respect to time. (laughs) Give me a 30,000-foot overview of what we've talked about and what recommendations you have from your perspective. Under certain circumstances, ordinal data might be something that you can ignore. When you have seven categories, six categories, even under some circumstances, five categories, you might be okay to sort of turn a blind eye to this and brute force right ahead with typical maximum likelihood estimation for whatever model you're interested in, probably with some sort of robust rescaling correction on the back end. You're probably going to be okay. When we get down to five categories, You might be okay when you have some symmetry in your variables, and maybe a robust correction is all that you need, and the relations among your variables might not be all that attenuated due to the five-category coarseness. But you move down to four, and certainly to three, and certainly to two, and you experience not just a slap-in-the-face amount of non-normality, but all of the relations that your models, that your research questions are going to be based on, it's going to be attenuated. You're just simply not going to be able to accurately estimate what's going on among the constructs that you care about. And so what we've been talking about today are, A, what are some of the issues that underlie this? B, what are some of the approaches to dealing with this? We talked both about limited information approaches and full information approaches. Generally speaking, if you move to some system where you are estimating polychoric and polyserial relations among your variables, and you use a diagonally weighted least squares or some other version of an estimator, you're probably going to get out parameter estimates that are reasonably trustworthy, standard errors that are reasonably trustworthy to be able to test your parameter estimates, And you will even get fit information out so that you can assess the degree of satisfaction maybe that you have with your model. How am I doing so far? Did I exceed the time limit? Only by about 200%. Close enough for Lockheed Martin. (laughs) That is actually written on the side of their building. (laughs) Close enough for Lockheed Martin. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think that's a really nice summary. The walkaway point for me is twofold. There's one is the six-inch extension cord, Mm -hmm. which is if you have these kinds of data, you have to do these techniques. And it's not just a little stat wonk thing to check a box. It's hurting you if you don't. You are Mm -hmm. underestimating the strength of the relations in your data if you ignore this. This is working against you in your ability to test your research hypotheses. So one is you have to. Second, as you're thinking about future designs and you're driving that truck from Hamburg to Toulouse, and you need to have the left hand working with the right hand, Mm -hmm. think about this stuff as you're designing your response options. Instead of four response options, maybe have eight response options Mm -hmm. or 10 response options or something that allows you to move away from not having the data available to you when you get there, right? That's part of the problem. If you have a trichotomous item, that's it. You're done. You have a value Mm -hmm. of one or two or three. 
If you have a 10 response option, at least you have the ability to work with that and make decisions based on the characteristics of the distributions you have. And so think about these things as you're designing future studies. That to me is the best take-home message of all, that the folks in design talk to the folks in analytics so that we can plan everything from the ground up. All right. Thank you, everybody. As always, this is great fun. Take care and stay safe. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks, everybody. Just a quick reminder to please send us your quantitatively themed haikus, or as we like to call them, haikus. We need them by March 26th. So please send us an email, an audio clip, DM us on Twitter, send a smoke signal, throw a note tied to a rock through our front window. Doesn't matter. Just find a way to get them to us soon. And remember all the usual. Listen to us wherever, find us on Twitter, come to our webpage, get cool stuff on Redbubble. You have been listening to Quantitude. We're like a massive federal stimulus package, but where you don't actually get any money. Quantitude is brought to you by... Frequentist Null Hypothesis Testing, the equivalent of guaranteeing you never get what you want for your birthday, but by God, you're going to maintain to your last dying day that it's exactly what you had hoped for all along. By my next-door neighbor, Frank, who promises listeners that he will continue to run his leaf blower precisely when I'm recording the sponsor section for as long as we choose to create this podcast. And by the word, deprecated a simple four-syllable collection of random phonemes guaranteed to raise the heart rate of any R user by at least 50%. This is most definitely not NPR.